Amara phone that just launched out of Rwanda, which is the Made in Africa phone. They claim that every component in the phone is actually made in Africa. And there's a lot of question as to whether that makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, is it the core competency? Are the supply chains there? Is the technical talent? All of that, the distribution networks. Does it make sense for Africa to become a hardware manufacturer when Shenzhen is still there and does that so cheaply? Welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz, and I'm here today at Georgetown University at the Georgetown Africa Business Conference. I will be recording a few different interviews today, but my first interview of the day and the one I'm most excited for is with Eric Olander, who runs a platform called the China Africa Project, and he is actually joining us from Saigon, Vietnam. Uh, he's in town for, I guess, some meetings. Are, are you in town just town for, for the, conference, the Georgetown or? conference? Oh, yeah, fantastic! Yeah, well, it's great, great to be here. Great to have you. Very here. excited to be on the show. Yeah, how, how often do you come to DC? I come every three to four months because it's the place that I come to to sign up subscribers for my newsletter. And there's a lot of interest in Washington about the China Africa relationship. So I, I try to come, you know, in the, in the winter, the spring, and the fall. Right. Okay. And so when when do you feel like that interest? started to ramp up? I'd say it's really in the past two to three years. You know, during the Obama administration, there was zero to no interest in Africa. President Obama only went to Africa at the end of his administration. It really wasn't a priority. And was that when he went to Kenya? That's when like he went to Kenya. But, and the irony is that he was kind of reluctant, I think, to go to Africa in part because of all the pressure that people like Donald Trump were putting on him for the birther movement. Mm. And it was just a, a complication for him that he just didn't want to deal with. And it was really a shame because it was in that time that the U.S. took its eye off Africa as a foreign policy priority that the Chinese started to really ramp up their engagement on the continent. Mm. And so those those are, I think, linked to some degree or not. And so this also coincides with China's broader global engagement. So China's doing a lot in Southeast Asia, in the Americas, uh, all over the global south. And Africa is just one piece of that. Got it. And so what, what's, um, what's your interest in Vietnam? Why did you end up there? Well, so I first moved to Vietnam back in 2012 when I was the editor-in-chief of France 24, which is the French TV network news site, and I was the editor-in-chief of their digital division. And then I got a call from a recruiter who said, uh, how would you like to come to Vietnam to to run the largest cable TV news channel for business news? So like the CNBC or the Bloomberg. Yeah. And I thought this would be cool. Yeah, that's and an awesome so back offer. in 2012, <laughs> and remember, Vietnam is a communist authoritarian country, uh, does not have a free press, but I would, I had spent a lot of time in China. And so I was kind of used to working in these frontier markets and under these somewhat awkward conditions in terms of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. So I had this really amazing opportunity. It's a rare thing that foreigners get the opportunity to run a news channel in a country like this. Right. Uh, in fact, I was the first foreigner that's ever been allowed to run a news organization in Vietnam. And I was told quietly as I was leaving in 2017 that I would probably be the last to. And they were very grateful to me that I didn't cause any problems. But I ran uh, a channel that's still on the air called uh, Financial Business News Channel, FBNC, for five years. And that's what brought me to to Vietnam. And so then I went up to China afterwards and I worked for WPP and on the Ford Motor account doing branded content, running their digital content studio. Uh, they had a huge digital content studio for content marketing, branded content marketing, social media content. I did that for two years. And then Ford is losing, unfortunately, a lot of money in China. So they decided to scale down. 
So we said, well, where are we going to go? So we decided we're going to go back to, to Vietnam. And my wife has a job there and I run the China Africa project from Vietnam now. Got it. And so why did it end up being the China Africa project, not the China Southeast Asia project? Well, my background is in Chinese affairs. So I started studying Chinese when I was 15 years old. Mm. The first time I went to China was in December 1989, so six months after the Tiananmen Square. And I, I was introduced to a China that was very, very poor. Uh, in fact, I remember when I would wait online with my host family for uh, rations and for rice, and there was no consumer goods available. I mean, this is a country that is poorer than Africa is today. So that was my first introduction, and I, I was hooked on China as the puzzle that you can never solve. Mm. You can never put all the pieces together for China. And it just was – it was fascinating to me. So from 1989 for the next 30 years, I've devoted my time to becoming a journalist there. So I worked for AP and CNN and BBC, all the alphabet soup of news organizations both in China and around the world, focused on China. At the same time, I spoke Chinese and I've studied Chinese and I still study Chinese to this day. I got my graduate degree in Hong Kong uh, and have just been focused on China. Then in 2005, my brother got a job in Kinshasa in the Congo. So I thought, I'm going to go out and see my brother. Let's go see. I've never been to the Congo. Went out to the Congo in Kinshasa. And back in 2005, there was one Chinese restaurant in Kinshasa, which ultimately proves that there is a Chinese restaurant in every city in the world. <laughs> and then uh, in 2006, I went back out for Thanksgiving to see him. There were two Chinese restaurants. I thought, okay, that's pretty interesting. By 2007, 8, and 9, something radical had changed. It just went boom. There were Chinese everywhere. There were Chinese shops. They were building roads. There was Chinese businesses. It was just, it was all over the place. And I was reading the press from the West, which was China's colonizing Africa, China's conquering Africa, China's taking over. And there was this real alarmist type of media. And you see this quite a bit today still in terms of how China is portrayed in the media and then I was on the ground and I would talk to my brother's employees and I would talk to Congolese and i say, what do you think about the Chinese? And they gave me these very, very complicated answers, nuanced, textured answers. I like this, but I don't like that. And it wasn't the binary good versus bad narrative that we have in the US and Europe. And I said, that's my story. Mm. So back in 2010, I moved to Kinshasa to run my brother's production company. And while I was there, I just started to blog and to write about my interactions with the Chinese and my interactions with the Congolese about China. And I tried to challenge a lot of these prevailing narratives. The narrative that the United States is a force for good and democracy our relationship with Africa is much more complicated than that. Europe has this very paternalistic view of Africa. Um, that, too, is subject to be challenged. Africans portray themselves oftentimes as victims. There's a very strong meme of victimhood in Africa. They are not victims. They have agency in these relationships. China portrays itself as the win-win, the that they're a benevolent presence. We know for a fact that the China presence in Africa is both good and bad at the same time. and so. Poking holes in those narratives is what I started to do, and that's what I do to this day. Mm. So since 2010, we launched a podcast, Twitter, social media. We now have about 1.5 million followers, a newsletter, website, social media, LinkedIn, all of those different things just focused on a nonpartisan, independent, 
kind of impartial view of the China-Africa relationship. Yeah, interesting. And I think that, I think it shows the demand for consumption of this type of content. There's not a lot of, at least in the traditional media, there's not a lot of very well articulated, highly produced, you know, thought-provoking media that's that's created about these topics. And so like that's you know, the advantages of these type of platforms that, that we're building. And, yeah, it, I know, mean, it's like, just like what you guys are doing and what we're doing. So the Washington Post has two great reporters, by the way, in Africa, but they cover everything and they cover the whole continent. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, the New York Times has a reporter in Nairobi who which covers- Which was a controversial- Which is a very- con yeah, Their job yeah. description was- Yes, but, exactly. But Abdul Latif, the hired, who, the, who they hired, is one of the best reporters that's mm. in the business today. Right. But he's one guy to cover an entire continent. And this is a continent that is so dynamic that there's so much going on, good, bad, and ugly, the whole range of things. Whereas what we're doing is taking a niche and a vertical and just deep diving in it. Right. And exactly. so from time to time, they'll do an African tech story. And from time to time, they'll do a China-Africa story. But there'll be a four or five-month gap in between those two while they cover everything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas with what we do, it's literally every single day. And with you guys, it's daily and on social media and then podcasts and things like that. So people want to kind of tap into it right away. And in the tech space, it's changing so fast that one or two reporters can't possibly keep on top of it. China first came onto my radar shortly after my, actually my first trip to Nairobi. That was my first like trip to Africa. And I remember I connected through Addis Ababa, um, Ethiopia, and looking out the window of the plane, I saw a big China Development Bank sign on the construction that was happening on the airport. And I remember thinking, I remember taking a picture of that and just thinking, like, that's, that's significant. Why, why is China building that? And so that was the first kind of clue into the the, the Chinese influence. And, and, what and how did it make you feel them. when you saw it? Because a lot of people feel weird Intrigued. when they see it. Just I wasn't expecting it. Like it stood out to me as why is China building that? Why is China's development bank building that? Is it China developing still? You know, because I think China's rise, you're right. During the Obama administration, there was just a gap in mainstream media and in policy with regard to what was happening in China. But now you're kind of seeing things like like Crazy Rich Asians and those type of movies that are resurfacing China into the consciousness of the West as people will tell you that's an American. Uh, no one in Asia took Crazy Rich Asians seriously, except no, no. in Singapore. But, but, uh, but so, in but, China, when I was, you know, that's like chow mein and, and kung pao <laughs> I chicken. I understand. You but know? the reason I bring that up is, is the consciousness of China resurfacing into the mainstream here in the West but from the perspective of money, mm. rich, wealthy. And that's what I see happening over here. Whenever I see news about China or media or a conversation about China, it's always from that perspective now in the West. There's also a, a meme of China taking over. And then now on conservative media in the U.S., it's about the red China threat, the military threat. Mm. So it's almost digging up some of these Cold War Soviet era types of, of references as well. So we mm. hear a lot of both the economic threat that they're taking over with, but there's also this security threat. So Huawei is both a technology thing, but it's tied to the Communist Party. So therefore, it becomes political as well. Right. Well, but. It also uses diplomatic leverage in negotiations for contracts. They do. And they get public financing for a lot of these contracts Right, exactly. As well. I mean, that's mainly what they're coming to Africa with. Is, that's right. You know, well, all over the world, South yeah. America, South Asia, lots of places. But I, I do think that I have a lot of the sim similar conversations about China uh, or Chinese influence in these countries. I think the general sentiment that I get is people really like the Chinese people. But it's the CCP that they're that they're wary of. I would love to see more 
you know, Chinese businesses, just Chinese citizens coming over and doing business in Africa. But I'm very wary of, because with our platform, the global startup movements, we kind of had this focus on Africa because when you talk about startups around the world, what, what's happening is that in Africa is going to shape what's happening around the world. Someone like a Jack Dorsey, you know, says he's going to live six months in Africa. He was only I guess, two and a half years behind me in discovering that. But who's counting, you know? I'm not 100% convinced that Africa is going to shape the world. I mean, mm. I think it's going to have – it's going to be a player. Uh, but I know in African circles, we like to talk about how Africa has got the demographic dividend and it's going to shape the world. Mm -hmm. uh, the center of economic gravity in the world, both for money and technology, is in Asia. Mm. Uh, and it's yeah, Asia's markets that. that are going to to drive it. It's Asian investment. It's Asian tech innovation. Uh, there's the markets are there. The I mean, in ASEAN alone, in Southeast Asia, where I live, mm. it's a market of 600 million people. It's almost the same size as the African market. Mm. And they don't face as many of the obstacles that Africa has to deal with. Climate change is going to hit Africa and is hitting Africa much harder than other parts of the world. You have power shortages in most of Africa that really constrain business and particularly in the tech sector. You, it's hard to run a tech business if you don't have electricity. Right. These are things that developing economies and frontier markets in Southeast Asia and, and in Northeast Asia, including China, have overcome. I don't want to poo-poo it. I also want at the same time to kind of caution that it will be an important player, parts of Africa, not the whole continent. Uh, but Asia is still, I think, going to be the engine for a lot of this in the 21st century. Yeah, so I 100% agree with you. Where I think Africa has an a opportunity to lead is in the lack of institutions and these hierarchies that we have in the West when it comes to uh, you know financial hierarchies, political hierarchies, uh, corporate hierarchies that are defending their territory. You don't have the same type of hierarchies in Africa, and so that creates opportunity for quicker innovation to happen. That's right, just like we saw in China. So China yeah. went from a very high level of unbanked to WeChat Pay and Alipay, where they leapfrog the entire credit exactly. card and that's, generation. That's the next leapfrogging there. And there's massive leapfrogging that happened. Now, China is a very unique economic and political system, but it does show that these types of leapfrogs can happen, these Big, big jumps in right. innovation, in part because there are, the incumbents are less powerful. So trying to do that here in the United States would be almost impossible because Bank of America, Wells Fargo, the four or five banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, they all hold so much power, both in the market, but also over the regulatory process. So the business roundtable, their lobbying groups here in Washington are very effective at pushing back innovation. Right. In frontier markets, we don't have that necessarily. You have other obstacles, but not that. So that is what allows for the massive jump. And I've seen that in Vietnam. In 2012, there was virtually no e-commerce. The internet was very spotty. And what I've seen today is now the internet is as robust there as it is almost everywhere else. The e-commerce engines are very strong. The mobile payments are coming in and it's moving incredibly fast. And that's in a political authoritarian system. Right. Yeah. Okay. So well, I, I think highly a, regulated. Mm, I think Asia is going to lead, like you said, but just because they have the best engineers in the world. Yes and no. There's some great engineers in Israel. There's great engineers coming up out of Dubai. There's great engineers even now coming out of Nigeria and Kenya. There's a certain critical mass coming out of Asia. Russia generates a huge number of fantastic computer science engineers. So I'm not sure that Asia will have the lock on that. Mm -hmm. Now, I said that Africa is going to face a lot of problems with climate change. Asia too. So, we're, you know, there's massive droughts that are now starting to hit parts of India. In Vietnam is a great example where parts of the country are very wet and parts are very dry. That impacts the ability to generate uh, electricity. 
because when the rivers run low, the hydroelectric dams simply can't produce. So mm. we amazingly run from lots of water to very little water in the rainy and dry seasons, but those are becoming exacerbated. Right. So there are challenges in Asia as well. So I don't want to necessarily put Asia out as the pedestal, yeah. but there is certainly a critical momentum that's there that we don't see in Africa yet. Mm. Africa has the potential, but yeah. Asia is already there. I think so. Yeah, a new all, all the different players put out their Africa VC report from last year, and so it, the base of the conclusion was Africa VC and the startup ecosystems are pretty much where funding levels and deal levels were at 2014, 2015 for Southeast Asia. And so the momentum is certainly there for Africa. I think we're doubling every year the amount of venture capital that's coming to the ecosystem. The one area I do think that isn't talked about enough that Africa can lead on because of the the rough environment there and necessity is the mother of, of innovation when it comes to hardware startups. Hardware startups in Africa, if you can successfully implement hardware that can survive in that ecosystem in somewhere like Nairobi or, or Lagos, that is something that I think provides a unique testbed for different hardware solutions that could scale very well to the outside world. So this is an interesting concept because the Mara phone that just launched out of Rwanda, which is the made right. in Africa phone. Yes. And they claim that every component in the phone is actually made in Africa. Mm. And there's a lot of question as to whether that makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, is it the core competency? Are the supply chains there? Is the technical talent? All of that, the distribution networks. Does it make sense for Africa to become a hardware manufacturer when Shenzhen is still there and does that so cheaply. Again, jury's still out. Mara is selling phones. People seem to like it. People like the idea that it's a made-in-Africa phone. There's a lot of pride right. in all of that. Uh, taking advantage of the global supply chain may be the best thing, where they design things in Africa, manufacture them somewhere else, and then re-import them. That's certainly the way it's been done. The big problem about made-in-Africa and doing hardware is you, you have a logistics issue. So getting goods through the ports, getting goods from country to country, 33% of Africa is landlocked. So are we talking only about, uh, you know, coastal areas that can do this? Uh, you have a regulatory problem. You have a tariffs problem. Now the continental free trade will ease some of that, but that's going to take years to iron out. So again, I see yeah. there's potential, but to China's credit, one of the reasons why Transin, which is the phone company that has 64% market share on feature phones and 32% market share on uh, smartphones and dominates the, the market, they built phones specifically for the African consumer. But they're not building them in Africa. They're building them in China. So it's a little bit like Apple, designed in Cupertino, manufactured in China. And I'm just wondering if, if that may make more sense that products become customized for the African consumer but are not necessarily made there. I agree. I think an African hardware startup, once it starts to scale, should manufacture in Shenzhen and then re-import. But it also brings up the the need for humility in emerging and frontier market startup ecosystems because those ecosystems exist in parallel to all these other needs on the infrastructure front. You can't have a thriving e-commerce ecosystem if you don't have roads. You know That is true. So, so you know, definitely humbled even though you know we really do focus on the innovation the startup space and sector to the fact that like these markets exist next to much much broader needs of infrastructure financing and kind of traditional sectors that we just kind of take for granted here in our silicon valley bubble in the u.s you know 
I don't take roads for granted here in the U.S. Given how shoddy the infrastructure is here, oh, you, and li- you live in Vietnam. I live in so. Vietnam, and I honestly, my telephone connection and the roads are uh, roads are kind of crappy in Vietnam, but uh, <laughs> certainly in China. I mean, it, how it, are the roads in China? I don't. Uh, know. I mean, it's just the infrastructure is unbelievable. Mm. That's just it's new, right? And it's new, but it's but they're making investments in it. Europe makes investments in it. I mean, Australia mm. makes investments. Japan, you don't have road problems in Japan. Mm. We are the only advanced economy that has potholes in their capital city like this. I mean, it's hard to explain to Americans how far we are falling behind. Now, Americans will often say, well, is it really better somewhere else? I mean, everywhere has got problems. You say, well, on infrastructure, on health care, on gun safety. Yes, it is better. I mean, it really is better. It's, there's no debate about it. You go to Taiwan, you will see just state-of-the-art infrastructure where bus systems, bike systems, cars are all integrated into public transit, into high-speed rail, into the airports. Everything is integrated. Sure, it's new, but it's new because they've made the investment in it. They've prioritized it. We have not made that investment in it. And for us to build something, whether it's a road or a bridge or something, takes years and years and years to do. So it's not a surprise that when we go to frontier markets as Americans and talk about infrastructure, we don't bring with us an enormous amount of credibility because people know how long it takes for us to do things and how we're struggling with it in our own country. And that really goes to the heart of our credibility in having these discussions with other countries about the importance of infrastructure. Uh, On digital infrastructure, we don't have a 5G solution. I mean, let's just be upfront. We are piggybacking off of the Europeans and Samsung. So when we're telling countries not to use Huawei, we're saying, okay, well, we need you to buy a more expensive solution from Samsung, Ericsson, you know, or Nokia. Yeah. So that that's a tough conversation to have in, in the developing world because we bring an ideological uh, perspective with it in terms of saying, well, China's bad and China's a risk and China's a communist authoritarian country who you shouldn't be partnering with for something as important as 5G. Yeah. Okay. So the head of Safaricom is going to say, great, I have $50 million. I don't know how much he has, but I've got $50 million worth of Huawei gear already installed, which I still have payments to make on. What are you telling me to do? Are you telling me to rip out $50 million and then are you going to help me pay it off with a grant or a loan or something? And then I have to bring in Ericsson equipment or Samsung equipment at probably a 40% markup on top of what I paid for the Huawei gear. The Americans don't have a response on that. It's really hard to have conversations where the crux of each side's argument is intent. Someone said something to me the other day that I've been thinking about ever since I said it. They said, they asked me, what's the opposite of a truth? The answer is another truth. Alternative facts is what some people would actually say. I understand that. But the opposite of a truth is another truth. And so when I think that China has bad intentions with what they're doing, but that's my opinion. And I don't. That's a feeling. It is a feeling. I mean, again, I'm not suggesting that they don't have bad intentions. I'm suggesting that it's not a fact based well, and that, but that's where I was going, you know, that, that's where I was going with it. And so, you know, uh, again, when, when I don't we, want people to think I'm apologizing for the CCP. No, 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 I'm just challenging the perception of feelings when we should be going on fact. I, I agree with that. And I think that one of the biggest arguments is, is, well, look at all this debt that the African countries are getting into when, you know, I, we're sitting here in Washington looking at the debt clock at 23 trillion. Most of that's to China anyway in the U.S., and yeah. so, and so, you know, the 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 kind of stance of being high and muddy on 
you know, African countries aren't going to be able to repay this debt. Well, I don't think the U.S. is going to be able to repay our well, debt. Well, it's, it's two things. One is we focus on the Chinese lending in Africa, but we're missing the bigger issue that three times as much cash in the form of interest payments leaves Africa to euro bond holders in the U.S. and Europe than it does to China. Mm. So China's debt in Africa is very, very flexible. It's very long-term, long interest payment holidays. It's actually quite low pressure. Uh, the euro bond markets are very high pressure. Mm. You can't default on those. You can't reschedule those. And three times as much interest, according to the Jubilee Debt Campaign, who is no friend to the Chinese, they document that three times as much goes to euro bond holders. So it's just important, again, to get our facts straight. Now, at the same time, while this debt is a lot of money for Africans, it's insignificant for a 12 to $13 trillion economy like China's. Right. We're talking, I don't know the exact number, but it's, let's say it's 60 to $70 billion that the Chinese have loaned to Africa. Maybe give them a hundred billion. Yeah. That's not a liability for an economy as big as China's. Right, so it's we're not, not a big deal, but it's it is not a big, big deal for Africa. But that's one of the reasons though. why we've seen the Chinese actually start rescheduling, writing off, right. canceling debt. Right. Because at the end of the day, I don't see it politically important for the Chinese to say, okay, we're going to call in those debts. Oh, for sure. And, if, they, and if a country, if Kenya collapses under the weight of Chinese debt, that just gives the Americans all the ammunition they need about the debt trap. Mm. And so I don't actually see that, that happening. So I think here in Washington, there is this obsessive kind of compulsive disorder focusing on Chinese debt, but it's lacking the nuance in the argument to understand really what it's about. It's reactionary. Well, it which, is reactionary. Which all these other things, like, you know, the UK, the Russians, Turkey, all them coming in, I think it's, it's really just reactionary to what they see China doing and trying to understand or, yeah, yeah trying to understand it. They see, they see an opportunity, but again, when we talk about the Chinese, they're not equals to the British, the Americans. Remember, the Chinese do five times as much trade with Africa as the Americans do. Chinese trade with Africa is actually going up. It was about $208 billion last year. Mm -hmm. U.S. trade with Africa has been declining since 2011. Mm. Most U.S. trade with Africa is focused in the hydrocarbon business. It's not actually spread out. The U.S. doesn't make anything. We're not a manufacturing economy. We're a services economy. And that's a good thing. That is what we are. But we don't sell widgets. We don't sell machinery. You know, in Africa, you can feel the Chinese presence immediately. So you saw them building things. You go into the stores. You see the products. You have the techno phones. You're seeing the presence of the Chinese there because they make stuff. We don't make anything. So what are we going to sell Africa? Not just Africa. The same thing is happening in Southeast Asia. The presence of the U.S., is declining very, very fast because we have fewer touch points. Mm. So we used to pride ourselves on our cultural exports. So movies, music, pop culture, entertainment. But now even that space is very, very crowded. Even the Koreans are importing their K-pop here. Well, I was about to say, in, in, uh, in Vietnam, teenagers don't look to American pop culture for guidance. They look to K-pop mm. and Chinese pop and J-pop. The Asian pop culture I market. Know, I, I didn't know there was a J-pop. There is. People love Japanese content, mm. uh, anime, you know, all of that stuff. That, well, yeah. there's just, but all of, there's even music, but it's all kind of mixed together. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so, and particularly social media just puts a, you know, in a big blender and right. kids are getting lots of different things into their feeds. So Americans have to compete to be able to get into a 14 year old Vietnamese girl's feed. Because she's got a lot of different influences coming her way. You know, one of the uh, kids at our at, at my son's school, I, we, she said, "Well, what? You know, where do you listen to? Where do you go for your pop culture cues?" And for her, it's China. 
And again, Vietnam and China hate each other in, in almost every way. Well, the Vietnamese hate the Chinese. Uh, but in culture, you know, that's, that's okay. The music, the social media, the short video, you know, the whole TikTok type of videos. Those are really, really popular. And Americans now, our culture is actually fighting to compete to be relevant in that. Yeah. There are, to be sure, there are still big blockbusters at the movies, you know, but the Koreans are also very big as well. Same is happening in Africa. Yeah. It's interesting how the, those two are abstracted or they can exist in parallel to each other. They, they, they have this kind of, I don't know if hatred of the Chinese is the right word. Maybe, maybe, it, strong, is. maybe it, it is. You know, the, the Vietnamese relationship with China goes back a thousand years mm. and China occupied Vietnam for a thousand years or ruled Vietnam. There's a, the word is, I'm, I'm lacking the right word for it, but it was the, the imperial force in many ways. Right. And, and there's still an enormous amount of resentment in Vietnam for that history. Mm. And remember, in Asia, history is not resolved. World War II in Europe was resolved. World War II in Asia is still very much a hot war. Mm. We still have the disputes over islands, over territory. We have the Taiwan-China dispute. South Korea and Japan don't like each other. Vietnam and China have issues. China has border issues with almost every country that it has a border, you know. I mean, it really is. I mean, and these are very, very, it's a very volatile part of the world. Mm. Um, And in many parts, because of the Cold War disputes are are still unresolved. And that does kind of, uh, that does color how business is done and and how things are done. We had a a trade war between Japan and South Korea and and the U.S. alliance and the U.S. presence now in in Asia is being questioned. Mm. And we're going through that change. So we're starting to see a fracturing of some of the things that have held together for the past 30 to 40 years. And that's changing the landscape. Well, certainly a brave new world we're heading into. But Eric Olander from the China Africa Project, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for a great discussion.